1: Are you guys enjoying the service so far? I don't know about you, but when they went into another language and I knew they were gonna do it, it was still so powerful. I was like, whoa, and I was thinking, okay, I think I do know, I think I do know what they're saying. Right? (laughs) But no, they did an excellent job. But today uh, we are having a conversation, and this conversation is in the room. It's not just up here. This conversation is a community conversation. You're part of that community, all right? So these folks are up here because this is something that they're also passionate about when it comes to diversity, when it comes to inclusion, as we hear these buzzwords. But most importantly, we are passionate about our faith, right? So we're passionate about our God. But sometimes it seems like those are two separate matters, whether we are, you know, feeling, you know, discriminated against or things that are happening in our, um, in our country or, I don't know, in our everyday lives, sometimes we may feel like we're not seen, but today we're gonna have a conversation and we're all come, have different backgrounds, come from different places, and we will allow you guys the opportunity to, if you have any questions that hit you, we're gonna put some microphones out and we're gonna allow you to ask questions, right? And this is meant to be a community conversation, all right? All right, so um, to start off the conversation, I wanna pitch it to Pastor Evan. Um, Pastor Evan, this is something he's been, before I met him 20 years ago, uh, this is something that he has been passionate about um, for a long time, and I don't know how much everyone in the room knows about where his passion comes from in this, or even things he may have experienced, or what kind of leads you to be a person that's an advocate in our community, like today, outside of Faith for Life, with the police department, and all these People that you're involved with to kind of help close the gap. Where does that passion come from for you, Pastor Evan?
0: It's a great question, and um, I I don't know. Uh, most of the time, when I after I get to know people, they often say things like, "Well, you must have grown up in a community that was predominantly black or Hispanic," or I'm like, "No, my neighborhood was 100% white. The community I grew up in, there was." in the high school that we went to there was uh there were like 3 african american families and a handful of hispanic families um i think a part of it is the way that i was raised my mom and dad uh um putting such an importance on everybody's equal and and being colorblind which now i believe is is dangerous in many ways um and, and I think that was just, that was just who we were, is, is, is everybody is equal and we don't see color. Uh, and so whenever I then found myself a little bit later in life in situations around non-white people, it was didn't, didn't phase me, didn't bother me, it, wasn't, it was because I was always taught everybody was equal. And I, I guess I was just young enough and naive enough to just <laughs> think that that's the way everybody thought. Um, and, and so then as I grew in, in my faith, and especially over the last several years, uh, you start to see so much of what Paul wrote in the New Testament is about our relationship with Jesus. At the same time, it's about being able to break down walls like ethnicity and Jews and Gentiles being able to worship together and not just being equal, but, um, uh, but being one even more so than equal, but becoming one in Christ. Um, And so I I don't, I guess it just comes from uh, the way that I was raised, more so than environment.
1: That is unique to me. Does that sound like unique to any of you guys? Like, I feel like, um, so for myself, I grew up primarily inner city Memphis, Tennessee, but I also had um, some years where I was, being raised in Oklahoma cuz my father went to Bible school there and so I've had moments where I was in like everyone looked like me and then I've had time as a young person where I'm the only black kid in every class and then eventually I worked myself through the ranks and um in my career and I was one uh found myself a lot of times being the only person of my ethnicity in a boardroom in a conference room as a leader And in my time working with Amazon, I grew to where I became a diversity, a certified diversity trainer, and was educating hundreds of Amazonians, as we call ourselves are called, um, to learn how to embrace different ethnicities and races. So I'm gonna pitch this conversation to you guys who have just a wealth of, honestly, um, experience in life, in work, and also driving the culture Um, I want to kind of pitch it to you guys. Do y'all have a mic yet? No? I'll pass you mine. Um, I want you guys to kind of share maybe let's start with what makes you care. What makes you say, I want to see this gap continue to close of differences or discriminations. Or even if you feel like you can share an example or something that kind of propelled you into caring so much about this.
2: Okay, I'll start. Um, I think growing up in a household where I, I had parents who, who cared, I, I was born and raised in Albany, Georgia. It is a city where Dr. King was arrested and went to, to jail for his activities. And just hearing my parents talk about uh, their involvement in that, and then in fast forward as an adult, uh, currently I work in an, in an environment that most people think is should be male dominated. I work for a, a large uh, health and human services agency that provides a lot of social services uh, to um, Texans, and so people tend to think that social services type work should be done by women; that women should be the ones who would do be uh, caseworkers and social workers. And so, after I got uh, through a reduction in force, came from over that side of the house to the support side of the house, uh, having an opportunity to be property manager, I mean I was met with a lot of I was shocked at the resistance. So this was in nineteen ninety-seven and it wasn't even subtle resistance. The first time I went to meet my new team, there was a man when I walked in the room, he yelled out, A black woman in business services. And so what he was saying to me was, You can't do what I do. You're not capable of learning to do this work simply because of the the skin that you're in. And so uh, at the time i did not have a an outward response but there was this war raging within because i felt like you have thrown down the gauntlet to me and i accept the challenge so <laughs> and so just passionate about that as i moved up the ranks at every level there's a new giant or a new challenge because you have to start over again proving your worth and that you have the the skill sets and the knowledge to operate there, so I'm very, I guess, a little, very sensitive about that, and, and also helping um, women to grow in into this area. The landscape has changed considerably since 1997, but it's still an area, uh, especially as you promote upward, where people still have the mindset that this is a, a domain that should be run by men.
3: Well, I grew up in the 60s, and I went to an all-white elementary school, and this is when busing first started, and so my my mom, she was the type of mom, she didn't ever talk, we didn't talk about prejudice at all in our household, and so I wasn't really prepared as to what was going to happen when we get to this all-white school. You know, my mother didn't say anything like, listen, when you get to that school, if this white person say this to you, you say that match, nothing like that. So when I got to the school, you know, the, all the white kids, they were they were looking at us when we got off the bus, but they didn't say anything derogatory towards us, at least they didn't towards me. And we didn't do the same, so we pretty much just grew up with these children with these these caucasian children and It was a very good experience for me as a matter of fact, one of my best friends she was she was caucasian so and just with that, and just being in a household where my parents didn't teach that, i didn't teach that to my sons, you know, and as they were growing up, you know they went to uh, a Christian uh, Christian school, which was basically African American, but their uh, high school it was a lot of Caucasian. So I didn't want them going to that school saying, you know, with this attitude, like you think you're better than me, because I didn't put I didn't put that in my children. Just as my mom and my father did not put that into me. So, and I wanted them to carry that throughout life. You know, just carry that wherever you go, if you're on your job. Just because someone is not the same color as you, not the same ethnicity, it's not that they're better than you and you're better than them. We are all all equal, and that's the mentality that we should always have. And I know that that's by us walking this Christian life, that's the way God wanted to be. So, and if we're professing to be born again Christians, we shouldn't be having that attitude as the white man is better, but white, don't let this white man do this, don't let that white man do that. We shouldn't have that mentality. Guess who? Guess what? Because God is not pleased with that. And if you do have that, then you have to turn that thing around. You have to go before God. You know, you don't want to raise your children up that way. You don't want to raise your grandchildren that way and your great grandchildren. Because if it's, if it's rooted in you, that's what you're going to do. That's what you're gonna do. That's bitterness. That's bitterness. So,
4: good morning. Um, <clears throat> I think the passion for me began in undergraduate. I went to an HBCU, Morehouse College in Atlanta, um, and there, uh, as you would expect, the the, the, the focus is really having you to appreciate your heritage, which was great. Now, I, I went to school with people who looked like me, different shades of brown, but could, could relate. And then it hit me uh, culturally when I went from undergrad to graduate school at a PWI, a predominantly white institution. And the feeling of Looking around and seeing someone look like me or a sense of belonging quickly diminished when I got there because now I'm not I'm, I'm not fighting now my fight becomes a fight of being recognized for me and What I could offer But I saw it as a challenge uh, I went to North Carolina State University. I was getting uh, my master's and doctorate in, in math which is not a, a course that a lot of people of color take so I was the minority uh, in every sense of the word but I took it as a challenge to communicate to my white counterparts uh, this, this education on what it means for me to be black and what that took was exposing myself and being vulnerable to the fact that uh, my white counterparts may not have had that experience or that education, so i couldn 't walk in with a ship on my shoulder because of because of you know, black programming through the through the years of what to expect, but it had to be I had to be vulnerable in that you 're coming from a ignorance is is such a strong word, but you 're coming from a background of just not knowing um, so challenging uh, my my then uh, white counterparts, who then became friends on what it meant to be, uh, what it meant for me to be a black man in, in this country, and how my perspective is different. And then uh, from there, I moved to uh, academia and began serving as the director of the Center for Leadership and Diversity in STEM. Um, so it was it was that same goal. Um, and if I could sort of theme my life from undergraduate to what I do now, it's, it's exposure. We as Christians, we understand exposure because the word says, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Expose yourself to my goodness and you will realize how jacked up your life was before. <laughs> but it's exposing not just the white students that I encounter, but it's the black students. For for them, is having to see someone in a different position from what I've seen before. And for the white students, it's seeing someone in their position that they haven't seen before. But even though I v- verbalized it the same, the perspective is, is, is different. So um, being able to expose different communities to the gifts that everyone can bring to the table um, became a... Um, Sort of, sort of, uh, I guess, passion and ministry of mine.
0: That that is, um, I think that is one of not not the, but that is one of the true um, disappointments and failures of American church. because what Doctor Ivy's saying is is the in the. In the In the exposure, his, as well as his students, their, their, um, not only were they, their horizons expanded, but they were able to learn things. There were gifts and talents that were able to enhance and enrich everybody's lives. And yet in church, we split all that up. And so, so church is essentially... HBCUs and what was that other term? The white term that you used? TWI, T-W-I. P-W-I. PWI. I was like, "What is that?" Predominantly white institutions, which is basically most of them? Yeah. Okay. Non-HBCUs. Non-HBCUs, okay? Never heard that before, but but I think the the experience of 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 having multicultural and multi-ethnic relationships and encounters has enhanced yours and their ability to, to learn and do what God's called them to do. What what Brandon did you have something you want to say? Or did they just hand you a mic?
1: We handed um yep, the two that haven't spoken yet to kick off the next question. Oh okay. Okay. <laughs>
0: Because I, I was going to take us to a whole I, different place. I felt it coming, a whole and I, I'm going to catch that wave. Place. i catch it.
1: Um, so when it comes to exposure, um, advice or things that you guys have done, in whether it's an everyday one-on-one encounter or on a larger scale, to help push exposure. Because what I hear is, Honestly, in the skin, at least for me that I'm in, everywhere I go, I have the opportunity to expose people that look different than me to me. Um, Not to my whole race, because I one do not believe that one person of color in a room that doesn't look like them, they do not have the responsibility of representing their whole race. At the same time, we feel the pressure. We feel like we have an obligation to help them understand everyone in our culture. And there is a a different conversation of, well, how much of my, you know, Ebonics do I let flow out in this, in this room? Okay. You know, if I turn to somebody and say something funny and i say, shut up. And they look like, oh my goodness, I've been there. So that's one whole other conversation. But when it comes to exposure, Kind of talk through you guys, anything you've you've done or an individual conversation to kind of maybe help expose our people or others to us.
5: Well, um, my experience is a little bit different. I'm going to kind of tie those two questions together. Okay. Um, The way I was raised, I was raised in inner city Detroit. Uh, However, it was a little different because I was close to one of the pockets of the Middle Eastern culture. So I went to school with middle, you know, um, Chaldeans and, and Arabic people, so the Middle Eastern. So that was kind of my flow. And then also, we still had a few uh, Caucasian people in my neighborhood. So I kind of had a mixing pot. And I, didn't really, I really didn't recognize or identify how different that was until really kind of you guys start speaking. It was normal to me. You know, and that's one of the things about when you grow up, you think that what you're experiencing is normal. You know, like a child, like I didn't know that we were poor until my parents told me I was poor. I thought we was rich. <laughs> you know, so so <laughs> so until until you're made aware of it, you you don't know. So with that, I began to see the the beauty in different cultures. Like wow, so it it spots it sparked a a love and desire to explore more. Um, there was a term that I heard, there was this, there's this, um, uh, this was several years ago, they were talking about um, uh, vision. Someone was, give, was ministering on, uh, on a, uh, a sermon about vision. And they were saying that there was this Chinese culture who plans for 500 years in the future. They plan for 500 years in the future. And I'm just trying to plan for two weeks. <laughs> I'm just trying to plan to make it to my next paycheck. But what that does, by planning so far, you're not gonna let one year, one decade, twenty years derail you. Right? So so those you can begin to pick up on some of those things there. Um and, and then just get having an opportunity to to um to explore my horizons not always doing the same thing it's okay not to vacation in the same spot it's okay not to go to the same place it's okay to try something different and in doing that what's going to happen is you're going to expose yourself to them and just be who you are we're not asking you to to be the foremost authority on on your on your culture on your race but just be who you are. And being who you are, they begin to see the value of another person. And I believe that's really kind of the uh, the thing I want to share. Just understand and seeing the value of who that person is. And let them see the value in the person of who you are.
6: Um, For me, um, I grew up in the South. I grew up in Louisiana. Uh, and I, I experienced a lot of racism growing up. So as I got older, I was like, man, how can I use my influence? How can I use my voice to empower people um, to do better in the culture? So something that we do every year is um, we show up at the state capitol. Um, we do a big photo shoot during Black History Month. Who is we? Um, my brand, Up Season, the, our T-shirts that we sell. So we not we just don't sell T-shirts. we more community-focused based and community organizers. So for me um is like sewing up and so on out to places that they will least expect you for, for you to be. Because when I first moved here, um, about five years ago, Austin was seventy percent 7% African American. So it's like the least place they expect us to be would be the state capital. So I invite all people of color to come out and show out and we just have a good time and we just unite and have a big photo shoot.
0: That's something that we do as far as exposure. So Brendan, what do you think um, why is it important for the 7% or whatever it is now, why is it important for what you do, um, why is it important for you guys to meet and gather and not just celebrate your culture but expose others to your culture? Why, why do you think that's important?
6: Um, I think the community aspect is important because you, if you don't feel comfortable within your community, then how can you grow um, and since Austin is so spread out, it's like we're coming together as one. Um, I think that's an important part, especially when you're trying to empower the culture, and empower people to um, love each other. So I think the community aspect is important.
0: Uh,
4: <laughs> I could have just said testing. I'm tapping the mic. Um, one one uh, example of exposure when I was in uh, uh, graduate school, there was one gentleman from Michigan um, who didn't have the, the privilege or the opportunity to grow up with uh, people of color. So he came um, with a lot of biases, not knowing that they were biases, but because of your upbringing, uh, because of his upbringing, he came with a lot of uh, biases. He was, um, and, I, and I wouldn't call him prejudice, he just had some biases. And one thing, he was, he was atheist. Uh, on, on top of that, uh, so we were um, we were driving somewhere um, and my my dad called. My parents are from uh, Mississippi. Um, so I spent a lot of time in, in, in Mississippi and in Tennessee. So the the tone you hear now has been doctored upon a lot of years because the Southern Twain, I used to have uh people couldn't understand me. But when I talked to my parents during this one conversation, all of that just flew out. <laughs> we were in a car, all of that just flew out, and he turned and looked at me and said, "Sam, I don't I don't think I understood a word you just said." <laughs> but that was an opportunity for me to talk about, well, my family is from here. This is how we communicate. Just like when, when you talk to your parents on the phone, yada, 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 it took years of just having those small conversations when we, when we could on how I was raised, how he was raised, asking those questions, the texture of your hair, why do you talk like that? I've seen black people do this, is that true? Answering those questions. Uh, and questions about my religion because I was I was talking about you know going to church every Sunday. Ended up to him, actually coming to my church, visiting my church, and
0: uh, wait, which church?
4: It was it was in North Carolina. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah,
0: because yeah. I've been to. Another story for another day.
4: No, no, <laughs> no, 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 no. Baby so steps. He, he, Baby if he, steps.
0: If he went to the church that he goes to and. In, in, well, I don't know if you, but in Mississippi, he would, that guy would have been the second white person to ever go to that church. I don't know
1: if you guys remember <laughs> the story Pastor told of when he, his first time going to the Church in God Christ Church, okay? So, uh, Dr. Sam Ivey happens to be my cousin. Our parents are brother and sister. And so, so also, that church,
0: he is very familiar with. And they have so, a also, of- if you remember the story of the first time I met Pastor Priscilla's family. And I walk into the, the 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 room where all the family is. It's a family uh, family, family reunion. reunion. They're all in one place. We walk in. All of a sudden, it goes. <gasps> it's she quiet. Didn't, she didn't tell him. I was bringing about a white boyfriend. She did not. <laughs> and
1: I was nineteen. Felt, I was eighteen. It was... felt
0: silent forever. And then all of a sudden, one person. Doctor Ivy's dad goes oh my god it's a white boy
1: (laughs) (laughs) and he was introduced to the family
4: but i am so glad the sins of the father you know (laughs) did not go down to the son hallelujah (laughs) but to, to finish the example christ asks his disciples who do people say that i am uh and i and i use that to think of Christ always being mindful of how he was perceived um, how people viewed him so I'm always curious when I come into these white, into my white counterparts or any, any, any uh, ethnicity well what do you view what do you perceive and then taking that not as a slight to where you're from but as an opportunity to educate well this is some may be true but this is, this is me Uh, or this is just my family, not to be the representative for all the black community, but this just holds for me.
0: And I think there's so many layers to um, this conversation of diversity and inclusion in in our country and in the church. Um, I I think there's a, a layer of personal responsibility as Christians, which many of us have talked about, of valuing everybody, of... Um, seeing everybody as valuable and, and as equal in many parts, uh, I, I think part of the danger, at least that I was brought up in, is this idea of being colorblind, of saying that, no, I just don't see color. Um, and the danger in that is, number one, uh, first and foremost, if you truly get to the place where you don't see color, then you're going to be shocked when you get to heaven. <laughs> Because in Revelation, it tells us that, that, that we still see each other's ethnicity. Number two, God created us, the color and the ethnicity and where we're from and the heritage that we have. Like, that, that's not an accident. That's not to be washed over and to be made like somebody else's because it's better or different. No, he made us unique, each one of us unique. We should never celebrate our heritage above our, our faith. But we should never discount and disqualify and just remove and act like we are not white or black or Hispanic or Asian or no. God made us that way. Um, But I think there's also another conversation, which um, in in Isaiah chapter one, verse sixteen, it says, "Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do good, cease to do evil." Verse 17 says, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord, though your sins are like scarlet, though they, they shall be as white as snow, though they are like red, red like crimson, they shall be come like wool. Now, many times we take verse 18 and we make this a very personal, God is going to wa- wash your sins away, is going to make you clean, all of that. And, and, and that applies... But when you read this in context, he's also talking about seeking justice and correcting oppression, bringing justice to the fatherless. I, I think the church, and individually, what, what we have done in many instances, if we've said, I'm a good person, I'm not racist. I love white people. I love black people. I love Hispanic people. I love Jesus. I want everybody to know Jesus. I want you to get saved. I want you to go to a different church. But I want you to get saved and come to church. And we have not come to the level of what is our role and responsibility when it comes to seeking justice. Because being a good person, being a good Christian, being somebody who loves Jesus and is not racist is not enough. That's just one verse for time's sake. There's many. Jesus was passionate about this. There, there is a role and a responsibility that the believers have to play a part in, <laughs> we never talk about politics and we're not going to talk about politics. Let's say making America great, not making America great again. Again, I'm not, I'm not speaking politically. I'm just saying if we are the light in a dark place, we cannot just be a light singularly to ourselves. It has to go beyond us and shining a light to other people, which may mean our prayers, which may mean our voices, which may mean our money, which may mean our actions. It may mean all of the above. Is there anything that that you guys would say in just your experiences or or your understanding of the role that the church should play? I'm not saying is because I don't see much of what the church is doing. And when I say church, I don't mean Faith for Life, I don't mean First Baptist, I don't mean whoever, I mean us. What what is the role that the believer should be playing in seeking justice and helping those who are oppressed?
1: And if you do have a question, you can step to the mic now so we know that you do have a question you want to talk about.
2: When I think about this question, um, at the, the backdrop of what tomorrow is, Dr. King's birthday in a celebration of that I think about his letter from a Birmingham jail where he called out basically um, pastors and spiritual leaders of other races and faiths it's like you turn on your television and you see that water hoses are turned against us and dogs and do we have the same god do we believe the same thing why are you not in this fight with us and so then you saw a ground swelling of people of all races coming to stand for the cause. And I think that's still what's needed today. We can't just segregate into our own uh, churches and communities that if we really want to see justice done, that as the church should be on the front line of that, crying out against injustices, regardless of the color of the people, their status that are involved in, in things that we see that are unjust. But I think the church has to be the ones that take the front line, uh, standing with the, under the banner of the cross, you know, Christ died for all. And so we should be the ones who stand
0: up for all. Yeah, absolutely.
1: I'll say that, um, I know when I think about the next generation and we have th- three biracial children and, Um, I know when a lot of things start hitting the media from Trayvon Martin and and all the other cases that, you know, there were so many injustices around all of that. It brought a big conversation to our household, um, especially the Trayvon Martin situation, um, because I like my heart breaks when I see something like that. You know, someone, you know, shot in the person who did it, you know, not necessarily facing consequences um through the justice system and all of that those things strike a a nerve in me and depending on what i'm watching and what i'm taking in if i'm not careful it could make me feel like the enemy is another race now i'm married to a white man (laughs) so i have a conversation with him and i'm just like this is how i feel in our house we can talk about this openly Um, but this is how I feel, you know, and he'll be like, well, this is, this is what I'm seeing. And I'll tell him, well, this is also what I'm seeing. And I know that for all of us, when something big hits the news, I think we have to be careful how we process that. Because if we're not careful, the enemy will come in and he'll use any negative experience you have with a different ethnic group. To try to turn your heart and make your heart hard again and it's forget exposure forget education i'm now opposed to anyone who looks like this or wears this or i'm opposed to so i'm curious uh, up here um maybe in wrapping up how do you how do you process you know devastations and injustices but still keep your faith intact? Or have there been times where it is, you have not been able to? How do you walk your way back? Um, and hope, hoping to advise anyone in the room, you know, who maybe have felt this way or have struggled with this before, like I have.
6: I think the main thing is you just gotta guard your heart. Um, you just gotta check yourself and realize that, you know, these things going on in the world, but no, our faith is based on love, so we just gotta check ourselves.
4: I think what uh, both pastors, how they started this panel in emphasizing community. What Pastor Evan was describing earlier with the segregation of the churches, we lose that sense of community, of being one body. The first thing that Entered my mind when I saw the first MLK clip here this morning was how the people during that time were able to corral around this idea of injustices. I haven't seen that sort of corralling since. Now we we've done some with, with Black Lives Black Lives Matters and, and um, other other. Uh, instances but to really get that sense of we're all equal we're fighting for this one ideal or one ideal um, I don't know I, 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 don't, I don't know if it takes uh, the, the choosing of one person uh, Martin, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. didn't raise his hand and said I'll be the one he was sort of forced into that position so does it take uh, a scenario for uh, a man of God a woman of God to stand up and and be the pioneer here, but I think I think the responsibility lies upon the church. We have the importance and the power to influence the world, and for a while the world has influenced the church, and and it's it's I think in times like like these these are opportunities for the church to say no 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 we. Here's my voice, my voice, our voice in the injustices that are um occurring. Hear us. Hear us from this multicultural church and saying, My brothers and my sisters are hurting during the during these times. Uh so I agree. It 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 the church has a responsibility. We haven't utilized that responsibility. Um but it, it, it starts, in my opinion, with panels like, like these. Get, getting everyone under one accord. Hey, you feel the same way? Do you agree? Do you, do you empathize? I don't need for you to, to, to try to feel how I feel. I, that's, that's not what I'm seeking. But can you understand? If your child went through this, can you understand? And then uh, connecting with other churches and, and letting that grow bit by bit. Back in MLK's day, they didn't have social media. They didn't have Twitter to say uh, hashtag uh, stop water hosing. They didn't. They didn't have that. It was word of mouth, and it wasn't just word of mouth. It was a strong conviction. Hey, listen, it was it was Sister Betty's child last week, but it could be yours. It could be yours, and we lose that. We lose that. It could be ours because we have the ability. We have the ability to change the channel or to swipe up and once it's out of sight it becomes out of mind wherein they didn't have that case they were constantly reminded of that so having that constant reminder
0: the the tamir rice situation was the one um probably that hit me the hardest of uh, the boy that was outside in the park and he was playing with a toy gun and the police gave me the video he, they just pull up and and start shooting um and that was one of those moments where that could be Isaiah that could be Josiah i would say many people now let's be honest not all but just many white people would say what what are we even talking about where what is the need for a mass mobilization you know you got a black we had a black president which was mixed he's Mixed by the way, nobody ever talks about that. <laughs> not that that matters it's just it 's always interesting to me. First black president is like he 's mixed um, <laughs> okay i 'm not, not trying to claim whiteness on that i'm, I'm actually i 'm actually thinking of my kids and like like my kids okay um, so so we've had a we 've had a black president we no longer have. The uh, Jim Crow. We no longer have slavery. Like what? It, there's no mass mobilization because there's no need for it. I'm not, I'm not saying that's me. I'm saying many people would say that. And they do. Is there is there a need for mass mobilization because of the police shootings and the things that uh, the media shows us on a? on a periodic basis? What is the need for the mass mobilization?
5: Well, part of that, what I what I believe that to be is if there's no connection with the community, if something happens in your community, then you're disconnected from it. But once you're a part of the community, that won't happen. It's just like if you know that the man next door is beating his, his wife, but you never do anything about it. That's, that's just being, oh, that's, that's their house. We're never going to get involved. We're not going to call the police. We're just going to let this happen. That's a disconnection. Right. So well, so that's God, not
0: loving your neighbor. That's not,
5: that's not loving your neighbor. And that's, God has not called us to be silent. He, but he's called us to step out and to be a light, which means that there's going to be some times when God calls you to step out into something which you don't feel comfortable in doing which also means that as being part of the community, there's times now we need to get involved. We need to run for certain things. We need to develop uh, something even within our community. There's other people that feel like like you, but maybe they're looking for someone to step out, and God has called you to be that leader. And it's, it's one of those great things that God says they were healed. As they went, they were healed. Well, When God gives you something, it's at the moment that you begin to step out, that you realize that you have a grace for it. The reason that you have that vision or that thought on the inside is God is giving you, he's saying, look, do something with this. Well, I need help. Well, you don't need help yet because I gave you enough to get started. God places a seed in us, and it's, it's once that seed is planted that we'll begin to see it to sprout up, and then after it sprouts up, it begins to bloom and then produce fruit. So as a church, God has planted us here in this community to sprout up, to bloom, and to produce
0: fruit.
4: I think that, and I'm going to hand this mic over. I feel like I'm holding this mic too
0: much. (laughs) Well, we're almost out of time. Oh, okay. Well, I'll be quick. Meaning we are out of time. But go ahead. Go ahead. The the illustration
4: I will use for your question would be the one that you used about my father. What, what, ha- what happened years ago during the civil rights movement was someone loudly professing, hey, a white man. And what is happening now is that they're acknowledging you, but in quiet. You see that white man over there? You saw him walking in? But we, a, a people who have constantly been brutalized by injustices, have always known about those secret, quiet conversations. The loud ones were addressed by the civil rights movements. Let's change these laws that are shouting against us and against our success. But now it's the quiet ones. It's the biases. Not necessarily racism, it's those biases. It's those things that have been that have been weaved within the injustice system that that we now have to 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 tackle. It's those whispers. Which we call I, systematic. Systematic. Racism. Yes. So in that, j- there was an effort to mobilize behind the loudness, but there there needs to be one around the quietness now.
0: <laughs> yeah.
3: Well, I'm just going to make it real quick. Um, I'm, I'm sitting up here and I'm listening to the different panelists here and it seems like the people that are from the South probably have experienced prejudice, but I I'm from the city and Minister Mario and he was, and as he was saying that he didn't know about anything like prejudice because of where he grew up. He grew up, and that's the same with me. We both come from Detroit. My mom is uh, from the city. I don't know about his parents, but, my, you know, again, how my mom, um, uh, how I grew up. So in, in essence of what um, Pastor Priscilla was saying about Trayvon Martin, when that whole thing came about, I didn't want to have a root of bitterness in me towards anyone. I did I really didn't. So, and I'm going to God asking God, God me as a Christian, how do we pray about this thing? Cuz it seems like it's just snowballing. Every week we hear about something like this. So, how do we do it? What what do we pray exactly? What do we pray for? You know, because again, if you don't pray about this being a Christian, you know, coming from the church, if you don't pray about this thing, that root of bitterness will just be in you, and it will grow, and it will grow.
0: That is interesting because my, my parents worked so hard to overcome um, these concepts of prejudice and racism um, because of their experiences growing up, their experiences growing up in the South that I don't know how often I experienced it or saw it, but I was always aware of it. And and um. And, and we're we're out of time. Uh, I you you want me to just close this? Cause yeah, okay. Um, so I, I need to, Yeah. Here, thank you guys. Can y'all can y'all give it up for them? Um. I I uh, there's obviously we don't have enough time to cover. Uh, All the things that need to be covered in this conversation in this time, Um, I'll say a couple of things. First of all, God wants us to love him with everything that we have and love our neighbor as we love ourselves. And especially now, our neighbors don't always look like us, don't always come from the north or the south or have the same experiences or ethnicities. And God wants us to even be more intentional, I believe, in getting outside of our comfort zones and loving those neighbors who aren't like us. It's why in the, in the Bible you read about Jews and Gentiles coming together and, and the emphasis that God placed on that. Even in the book of Acts, when the Holy Spirit comes and they were supposed to go, first of all, to the place where people like them and then out to the place where people weren't like them and then to the world. Like God is intentional with this because he has a plan for this, that if we would do this, if we would love people who don't look like us, we would be in relationship with people who don't look like us, not, not not haphazardly but intentionally, then God can do something and show something to the world about who he is. That's what the Bible says. I don't know if we can always understand it, but it says that we'll be known by our love. And Jesus prayed in John 17 that if we would be unified together, not just along racial or ethnic lines, then that will show the world that he is who he said he was, and we're not doing that, and we we have a very personal. A view of salvation and church and so we're saved and we love Jesus and that's great and we'll, we'll be around people that we get along with, which are people that we have commonalities with, which are people that we have the same interests with, which people that we go to church with and churches are segregated and we, we just perpetuate this segregation among our, our society and our culture. But the second part to this is this idea of our responsibility as believers to seek justice and help those who are oppressed. And yes, the media over the years has shown us some of the most horrific scenes through body cameras and through videos and through all kinds of different things. But there is, I, I believe full, wholeheartedly that there is systematic Racism and injustice still happening in our society today that is not just against people of color, but against a group of people that makes them less than, and I think the church is silent on this. We can raise our voice and our prayers and our money and all of that for these, these things that feel like somewhat isolated incidents of police shootings or violence or murders or whatever they may be. But what are we doing about, let's just say, first of all, all the men that are getting locked up and imprisoned for things that really they don't need to be imprisoned for. <laughs> they need some rehab. They need some help. They, they, they need different forms to be able to help them be productive. Men in society, you want to ask where all the fathers went? It's not because all black men are deadbeat, lazy dads or all white men are trash or like, no. no. Some of the the fathers, many of them are in jail for things they shouldn't be in jail for. I'm not saying they didn't break the law. I'm saying the laws need to change. And then when they get out, (laughs) they can't vote. They, they, they They can't be in juries. They can't get federal help. They, 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 they can't, there's a whole lot of jobs. You might as well, you're going to have to be an entrepreneur at that point. Because there's a, a place on every application that says, have you been arrested? Have you been convicted? Like, what is the church saying about that? Are we, are we in agreement that these people are less than? That they aren't worthy of a second chance? There is no forgiveness. That's what the church has said in our silence. That if you mess up, and the crazy thing about it is, we all mess up. It's not if you mess up. It's just if you get caught. If you're new here, you're like, what just happened today? Listen, we're we're a church that, like, first and foremost, we want to empower you to follow Jesus. But we are a church that God has called this church to be a church where everybody of every ethnicity and every race can come and worship together and and, and experience Jesus together and feel love and and feel the presence of the Lord together, sitting here together, um, and going out into our world and doing that together. Well, if you enjoyed today's podcast, there's a couple things I'd love for you to do. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. You can also invest in helping us empower others to follow Jesus by texting any dollar amount to 512-520-0185. Thanks again for joining us today on the Faith for Life podcast.